0: Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking to Professor Caroline Mansfield about all things digestive health. Professor Caroline Mansfield is a registered specialist in small animal medicine, and she is recognised as an international leader in veterinary internal medicine. She graduated from Murdoch University and worked in mixed animal and small animal practice in Australia and the UK before completing a residency in small animal medicine at University College Dublin. From 2001 until 2010 she was employed at Murdoch University as a clinical registrar and then senior lecturer before moving to the University of Melbourne in late 2010 as the head of small animal medicine. She then became a professor and director of clinical research. Her research involves projects investigating mechanisms involved in canine inflammatory bowel disease, the pancreas, and establishing the impact the gut microbiome has on health and disease in dogs and cats. Hi, Caroline. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pure Animal podcast today. We're so excited to talk to you about all things digestive health. How are you today?
1: I'm very well, thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Oh, great! Well, well we feel like the pleasure is ours, <laughs> um, and we are going to be speaking today um, mainly about which is the sort of bread and butter of your work, gastroenterology in cats and dogs, looking specifically at the microbiome and probiotics versus antibiotics, Um, but we can see where the conversation takes us. Before we get into the the crux of it, I'd really love to hear a little bit about your background and what made you actually want to be a vet in the first place and then how did you end up working in gastroenterology?
1: (laughs) Um, wow, that's sort of going back into the 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 dark ages. Back into to what what um, <laughs> sparked my journey. Um, I guess I'd like to say it was a really carefully thought out plan, but I think, like with with most things, it was um, you know uh, a bit of fortune um, and, a, and a little bit of uh, luck. I think that kind of led me on my journey. So uh, I guess my desire to to be a vet was was a loose desire um, through through high school. Um, I graduated from high school a little bit a little bit early, so I was a little bit young um, and I took some time to decide where I wanted to be. Um, and I was really fortunate to um, be at a time where I was living in Perth and um, able to go to Murdoch University, which was mm. a like a really terrific Fantastic. terrific vet school. yeah, um, yeah still is. Yeah. Yeah. At, at the time my interest, believe it or not, was in horses. Um yeah. and um, you know, that was uh, from my childhood and um, you know, my my father was involved with horses and so a lot of my childhood memories were um revolved around that. Um oh, lovely. And so yeah, so when I graduated I, I worked in mixed animal practice um and a little bit of equine stud work, but I I actually found it I found it um like to say challenging, but um, I actually I actually found that it wasn't mentally challenging. It was probably physically taxing, but mm-hmm. um, I didn't find either the work I didn't find the work particularly enjoyable. Um, and yeah, right. So it kind of stimulated a for me that I probably needed a, a new direction, um, mm-hmm. and it coincided with the time for going overseas, like many young Australian vets do. So I was working in the UK. Um, I was doing locum work, which predominantly was small animal work, um, and the opportunity to apply for some residencies in small animal medicine came up at, at, at that point. Um, and I'd always really enjoyed small animal medicine at, at university. It's probably the, the thing that I, um, you know, excelled at and, and enjoyed the most. Yeah. Um, and I think if I hadn't, um, you know, been successful in getting the residency at, at Dublin, so University College Dublin. At that time, I probably oh, cool. probably would have actually retrained, to be honest, and probably gone into human medicine. So oh, really? for me, it wow. was yeah, it was a real it was a real fork in you know in the road in terms yeah. of me in terms of career. So um, yeah. I was really lucky. I I had um, Professor Boyd Jones, which you know many people might know um, from New Zealand. He was um, my residency supervisor, So mm-hmm. I was. Um, I was in Dublin for three years, which was a pretty exciting.
0: That's fun, place yeah. To be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <it laughs> is. not so
1: not so much fun for my liver, but it was really it was really fun <laughs> for everything else. Um, and the project that I did there was uh, involved um, looking at uh, lipase, uh, um, mm-hmm. at, well, actually, trypsinogen activation peptide. So, looking mm-hmm. at an alternative diagnostic tests for lipase and canine pancreatitis. It was a, it was a master's project. It was part mm-hmm. of the requirement for my residency, which you know um, enabled me to get my, my diploma and my board. So I was able to be a, a specialist. Um, awesome. At the time, I wasn't entirely sure where I wanted to go with my career after that, whether I wanted to be in private practice or academia, but um, I returned to Australia and I was really fortunate then to return to Murdoch in Perth and um, initially as a, as a clinical registrar and then I became an, an academic and I continued my research into pancreatitis and particularly addressing management of it, so looking at nutritional mm-hmm. treatment, nutritional intervention and, and I did my PhD um, while I was working there and, well, and I started while I was working there and then I also started some projects um, for my residents that I was supervising, um, looking at inflammatory bowel disease, as yeah, well sure. um, in dogs. So like <clears throat> in dogs, predominantly, um, yeah. I think you know, particularly the caseload um, in that at that time was you know eighty five percent dogs. Um, so it mm-hmm. made sense for us to to concentrate on that. And then um, I was fortunate to be um, considered to be head of medicine at University of Melbourne, and so wow. I moved. From Perth to Melbourne in 2011, and um, then I completed my PhD in 2012.
0: What and was your PhD in, Caroline?
1: It was in pancreatitis. So, um, yeah. yeah, a lot of it was on nutritional management, but also looking at um, sort of things like sensitivity and specificity of, of pancreatic lipase. Yeah, sure.
0: Um,
1: also assessing uh, histopathology and um, severity indices um, as well. So it was a really clinically based PhD, which I think is mm-hmm. a little bit unusual for most PhDs tend to be much more sort of bench top, um, in, yep. in veterinary medicine. The so yeah. the advantage, I guess, in doing that type of PhD for me was that I could continue, um, with my, uh, clinical interests and I didn't have mm-hmm. to sort of step out, um, for, uh, three and a half years, um, and, yeah. and, and do my That's PhD. Great. And yeah, so, um, that also, I guess, coincided with the time at which I moved to Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and I was really, um, really lucky when I came to Melbourne that I was um, supported in, in able to sort of set up my own uh, research interests and my own research group. Um, yeah, that's And great. I had some of my residents and PhD students from from Murdoch that, that followed me or, and came with me. Um, oh,
0: wow.
1: Yeah, which was also great. So we were able to sort of set up um, some programs looking at, at microbiome in, in cats, for example,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, with diabetes um, and, you know, looking at whether there were sort of changes um, sort of independent of their age and their diet um, and we were also able to sort of continue the project in IBD that we'd started in Murdoch um, and sort of uh, collect samples from from dogs in that particular project. Um, and I was able to establish some contacts with um, some paediatric uh, um, researchers at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. So we were able to you know, yeah, start looking at virome uh, characterization, um, which hasn't had as much um, interest, uh, I guess, because um, it's a little bit even more scary than the microbiome, I guess, but all bacteria and um, in in the gut. So uh, having all of those sort of contacts and and that um, capacity to build my own research group meant that I could start exploring the microbiome, and then we we started to develop more and more projects along the, the way, and um, as I was able to, you know, continue fortunately to sort of build up these sort of smaller projects that kind of became a, a whole, um, story together.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, I realised, you know, I guess the more that I started to know, you know, that there's a whole bunch more that we don't know. Um, yeah. and there's a whole bunch more to learn. Um, and even though, uh, you know, even in human medicine. So even though we always feel sometimes in, in veterinary medicine that we're kind of like the poor cousins to uh, to what they know in in human medicine, there's still there's still this huge gap and huge um, you know uh, capacity for us to learn about the microbiome and potentially harness it or use it um, as as a tool um, mm. to either prevent or treat um, diseases beyond the gut, um, which I find is is just you know, it kind of lights my it's fire. It's a really exciting yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely.
0: Yeah. And so, you're current. Are you currently working on a project um, looking at the microbiome in chronic enteropathies in dogs? Is that still underway?
1: Well, we've actually just we've actually just wrapped. Well, we've wrapped up the clinical recruitment of that. So we, we finished oh, great. the clinical recruitment um, uh, at the beginning of 21. Mm-hmm. I was about to say the beginning of this year, but it uh, slipped into twenty twenty. So it's always <laughs> yeah, a bit confusing.
0: So.
1: Yeah, so uh, we finished the clinical recruitment last year um, and we have uh, just finished um, the sequencing. So the sequencing data mm-hmm. is, you know, we, ha- we had, you know, sort of um, we talk about big data and, and the amount of data that comes from, from microbiome sequencing is, is pretty huge. So we've, um, you know, we've got something like 356 samples that have all sequenced and, you know, oh, they each come up with, you know, 3 million sequences per you know, p- per sample, so it's a lot of data for us. Oh to gosh, yeah,
0: yeah, that's so, going to take um, many months, I would imagine.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, one of the things that we have been working on over the last six months is is a what we call a, a, a pipeline or an analytic pi- pi- platform, um, mm-hmm. which uh, we've been working on with some data scientists. So that's kind of going to be helping us in in analyzing the longitudinal samples because mm-hmm. one of the things that we did find. Um, with this study and with, uh, with our other studies as well, is that particularly with IBD or chronic enteropathy, the microbiome is really inherently unstable. You know, it's widely variable within a particular individual and each individual dog differs from, from each other. But then, so that inherent variability means that you can't compare the them to each other you kind of have to use each dog as their own control and so you know we need to do longitudinal sampling and it makes the uh, statistical analysis really quite complicated when we're then having looking at what changes are present in the microbiome and and so then when we're looking at trying to to see what changes there are in the microbiome, we have to obviously look at the comparison um, from the baseline, but then we also have to separate out the treatment response groups. So we mm. divided those into like dogs that responded to diet alone, dogs that responded to diet and fecal microbial transplantation, and then dogs mm-hmm. that required um, steroids or you know immunosuppression. Um, and so for each of those, we then have to, we want to separate those out and see is there a difference you know, between those treatment groups, and is there a difference that we can see at baseline? Because that would be that would be amazing if we could see that at baseline. Yeah. Because then we could then we could you know save a lot of time and an effort for for owners if we could just say, well, you know, your dog's not going to respond to yeah, this, this is the this best this, so treatment We're, we're, we're going to go yeah. straight to you know straight to point um, you know point B. So yeah, we,
0: absolutely.
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so we've got that data, and then we've also um, are waiting on some. Uh, The data, I guess, to complete the whole story. So even though we can, you know, we can see what bacteria there are there, the bacteria themselves, even if you can find that one bacteria is, or, you know, bacteria family is depleted, it doesn't necessarily mean that the functionality of that bacteria is gone because the other bacteria might take up that functionality, Mm. Um, so we're doing some what's called metagenomics as well, so actually looking at the genes that are encoded um, by the bacteria that are present, um, wow. which adds a, a, another layer of
0: complexity. Yeah, it um, sounds complexity. very complex.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, so interesting and then, though. And, and then we're also doing some targeted um, metabolomics um, for looking at, um, you know, what impacts or changes within the 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 dogs themselves, so are there changes in, um, you know, and metabolites um, that the bacteria may influence? So are there alterations in, for example, short-chain fatty acids or, you know, amino acid pathways that may be uh, affected by the microbiome? So we're wow. trying to kind of get, I guess, a, like a 360-degree um, yeah, of what's of actually project, happening. It? <laughs> yeah, it's a big beast of a project,
0: isn't it? Yeah, it's a big project, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay. So interesting. So when are you expecting that one to be sort of all wrapped up and have some amazing and results to we'll, share? We'll pro-
1: Yeah, we'll probably have the abstract. We'll probably hopefully have the initial like interim results um, completed in the next couple of months and um, be presenting that fairly soon. So that's looking at the Great. microbiome data, yeah. yeah. Um, within I guess the second part of it we're actually looking at what's the impact on the host. So like are mm-hmm. they, you know, more or less – um, you know inflammatory or inflamed with the treatment it's probably going to be another um, sort of six months past that mm-hmm. um, and then of course you know as to when it's going to be published you know that depends on how well we write it and how much the <laughs> journal likes it and um, how many revisions come but certainly yeah, certainly sure. it will come out this year um, you know so, whether it's in abstract form or published only or whether it's published as well but yeah we're, we're aiming to move it on fairly quickly.
0: Oh, that's great. I'll have to keep my eye out for it. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. Um, the the, the you, thing
1: that I found, sorry, the thing I found most interesting about it, like, like these were all referrals cases, so, you know, most of them had gone through, you know, some degree of management at their veterinary clinic, but what we still had, over 50% of the dogs still responded to diet.
0: Um, yeah, well, isn't that great? Yeah. So, you're, so um, you don't have to, I don't know how much you want to reveal, but um when you say responded to diet, what diet were you putting them on
1: it depended it depended on the history of what the what um, what the dog had been fed previously so we predominantly would feed a like a hydrolyzed product mm-hmm. um, so a like a hydrolyzed commercial diet um, yep. and we would pick one that the dog had not been exposed to before um, yep. and uh, every now and again we would supplement with a a Novel protein diet, yeah. Um, but we would not use a novel protein diet as the diet to start with. It was usually like it was a commercial hydrolyzed diet. There's a few options uh, available, like a few um, veterinary options available on the market. And uh, And I and I believe the reason why probably why a hydrolyzed diet probably works better is it's not just the fact that the antigen is hydrolyzed, it's, it's also probably because there's other benefits like the fi- the fibre is essentially acting as a prebiotic, so it potentially it alters and shifts the the microbiome. So there's probably yeah. a few other benefits with those diets that we don't see yeah. with a, a, a novel protein diet
0: yeah, alone. Yeah, sure. So essentially if you've seen 50% of the dogs respond to diet alone then 50% um, they have a... A, a food sensitivity that's underlying their enteropathy. I mean, yeah. have mean, it's food a big conclusion to like make, but...
1: Yeah. Like when we say in like a, it's, we, we probably say it's like it's diet responsive because some of, most of the dogs can go back to their normal diet after six months. Ah, right. So it's not, it's not a true sensitivity. Once like, all the inflammation like, settled yeah. down. But, hmm. um. But we run the risk though, like so most of them can go back to their normal diet um i'm I'm quite um cautious though so i'll you know some people will say after three months you can put them back on their normal diet I tend to push it out a little bit longer and i I'll, I'll usually say I'd kind of want six months of no you know no relapses and no clinical signs and um it depends a little bit on the severity of um you know, how bad the dog has been. And, you know, six months is a long time to keep a dog from eating nothing else. And so quite often you'll find that they might scavenge something else or get access to something else during that time. And um, the owners will often say, you know, if they've eaten, they've, you know, got a little bit of chicken from the table or something, and then they had diarrhoea the next day.
0: And oh, really? for those
1: dog Yeah, for those dogs, the, you know, the owners are really reluctant to go back to the normal diet. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. You know they, yeah. they're just paranoid that that things are going to go back to, to how, how they were. So maybe we'll push, you know, push the, you know, push it out a little bit longer. But, um, you know, like a, a fair percentage of them will not relapse if you put them back on their original diet. But the problem is if they do relapse, um, the chances of them then – um, going back into remission with, going back onto the you know if you put them back onto the hydrolyzed diet is yep. you know decreases. Um, right. So okay. yes, so you it's do you do kind then. of run that that risk yeah. with them, um, yeah. and we kind of talk that through with the with the owners. And um, for some people, uh, you know the expense of the hydrolyzed diet, and you know particularly um, currently things are difficult to access and difficult to. Um, not always easy to get um yeah. so a lot of them will uh, decide that it's a risk worth taking but for some of them you know they just do not do not want to go back to how their dog was and do not want to risk yeah. it they'd rather you know they'd rather just stick with it stick with it yeah
0: yeah um and when you're putting them back on their normal diet are you doing any sort of food challenges or is it literally just you know weaning them back on over a few days you
1: No, know, it, it, well it, it depends a little bit on what the What the diet is that the owner wants and how what the owner wants to go back on. Um, So, for some Mm. people, it's they don't want uh, a completely normal diet, they just want to be able to give training treats or you know, yeah, um, special treats like that.
0: Watch their dog like a hawk the whole time, yeah,
1: yeah. So, if that's the case, then um, you know, maybe we would just like we would give um, like a protein a small amount of a protein once a week or something like that just to see if there's any reaction whereas if they want to completely revert back to a normal diet then it's a gradual reintroduction over a couple of you know over over about a week
0: mm-hmm. yeah sure and are you ever using a probiotic or anything to support them during that transition i usually i
1: usually um, ask them to have either probiotics on hand or no Um, or know where they can access them very quickly. And so if Mm -hmm. there is, uh, and, you know, um, for some reason they have, particularly the ones that are not on any medication, um, you know, that have either had a diet, you know, either diet-sensitive, responsive, sorry, or um, have had FMT and a diet change. um, For those ones, I um, will say, you know, if there's any type of diarrhoea to start the probiotics, um, you know, until the diarrhoea is resolved. So it's like a... Emergency So it's starch. like a
0: reactive, um, rather yeah. than a preventive. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yep. And and also potentially if they're going to be um, kenneled or they, uh, you know, are going to have a procedure done or anything like that at the veteran clinic, I will often say to use them prophylactically in those circumstances as well.
0: Yeah. Sure. Okay. So when they're exposed to either another diet change or any sort of stress, um yep. you'd like Correct. to support yep. them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And I know that you've also recently completed another project, which was modifying the gut-brain axis to um, in shelter animals. That well, sounds I, really yeah. interesting too. <laughs> yeah, I, wish we had, had been able to complete, I wish
1: we had been able to complete that to the way um, to to its full. But unfortunately, the the global pandemic and COVID meant that we couldn't complete that entirely. But um, the first part of that um, that we had finished was. Um, was basically trying to, to correlate and see whether there was a um, a match between like faecal scoring and their degree of stress and anxiety as sort of um, as determined by, um, you know, observational scores, you know, so how yeah. you – pretty much the same way that you can do pain scores by observation, these are sort of uh, stress and anxiety scores. And so – um, some of my um, final year students that were doing their research projects were were able to you know go to some shelters and they were you know um, correlating fecal score, fecal scores with these stress and anxiety scores and there was like almost like a perfect correlation so right
0: uh,
1: yeah so the more the more stressed the animal the more likely they were to have a have uh, loose stools um, yep. and uh, you know so that kind of like was the first setting for us to then um, you know uh, I guess justify the need for us to look at um, using a, a, a probiotic as an as an intervention, potential intervention in, in shelters, um, mm-hmm. either a probiotic or a symbiotic, um, yeah, you know, as an intervention to, for, for a number of reasons. I guess one is to, to try and decrease that anxiety, and that in turn decreases, I, I guess the the adoptability of the dogs and cats. Yes,
0: uh, of course. yeah,
1: because I guess the more um, the less anxious they are, the, the the better they look to their potential yeah.
0: um,
1: potential yeah, adopters.
0: Definitely. Yeah.
1: Um, but also I, I guess any time there's loose, loose stools as well, they'll often um, often there'll be concerns about infectious disease and, and you know, there's risks of spread and
0: all sorts of other things as yeah. well. So from a management, you know, shelter management perspective, it seems highly desirable to try and avoid that. Yeah can. and that, there
1: has yeah. there has been some um work so there's uh, um certainly in a lot of um experimental and bench benchtop studies in in rodents there's a lot of work that shows that um uh you know probiotics will help reduce stress and anxiety mm, um, okay and you know they do um also will improve um memory and learning uh which is interesting. quite interesting yeah. uh and there is um, one study that has shown that a study that um, of I think Labradors um, that they I guess they analysed the microbiome of um, you know Labradors with a calm disposition versus those with a more nervous disposition and they identified a particular strain of bacteria called Bifidobacterium longum um, mm-hmm. that was more prevalent in the the calm. Um, the calm, natured uh, Labradors, and so that that particular strain of Bifidobacterium longum has been developed as a as a probiotic to, and been shown to be, um, you know, beneficial in 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 you know, uh, decreasing stress and anxiety um, in dogs in, in short term situations.
0: Yeah, sure, is, okay, and so in your opinion. Do you believe that it's all related to an increase in production, or what sort of a more efficient production of neurotransmitters from a healthier gut that then impacts the brain?
1: Yeah. So, so you know, it goes back to the, the gut-brain axis, which is mm. um, a really um, quite a complicated. Well, it's a bidirectional axis, so it's quite a complicated axis. So there's a whole bunch of um, you know, there's direct, um, direct neural Neural signaling between the gut and the brain, and then there's also indirect signaling between the metabolites that are produced by the gut bacteria as well. Um, yeah. And uh, and I, I guess if there's a, an, an imbalance or a dysbiosis, or um, then that can also, uh, you know, cause more likely be cause stress and anxiety. Um. And I, And also, I guess if there's if that's compounded by other factors, and I guess in shelters, those other factors would would be, a, you know often there'd be a change in diet, um, yeah. you know, and and stress, then then there's also the potential for there to be more of a more gut permeability potentially and more likely for there to be um, you know, mediators in the in the bloodstream as well.
0: Yeah. So it's a bit crossing, of
1: a crossing into the bloodstream. So it's a little bit of a little bit of both for
0: sure. Yeah, sort of bi directional, like a bit of a chicken yeah. and an egg. Yeah. 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 So you said that you you didn't get to quite sort of finish that project. What were the aspects that you had to leave behind because of the pandemic? <laughs> uh, the good bit, oh. <laughs> the,
1: the bit where we were actually able to intervene and see whether we could uh, ah. use the prebiotic, yeah, to yeah. see whether it was able to actually reduce stress or anxiety. Yeah, so sure. Unfortunately, yep. um, you know, unfortunately, that was uh, what we were most looking forward to do, but. Um, but our study sponsor was unable to come up with the funding, and we were also unable to access the shelters as well at that particular time. Uh, so, yeah.
0: so it could be a part B that we could look at doing we, in the future. Then, <laughs> definitely, definitely hope yeah. so. Definitely hope
1: yeah, so. And, absolutely.
0: Um, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, and
1: also, I guess we're also looking at um, the microbiome in um, in obesity as well, because I think that's a that's yeah. another really interesting
0: um, yeah, aspect. It is. Yeah so following a lot of the the interests that are um you know currently sort of prevalent in the human research world in this area too Yeah
1: absolutely Yeah,
0: yeah. That's amazing so we've talked quite a lot about Dogs, but I know that one of your strong interests also is in cats, and they don't quite get the amount of research done on them as dogs do. Um, so, are you able to just take us through, in your sort of clinical experience, what you see most commonly occurring in in cats' guts, um, what issues you see, and um, and how you recommend managing sort of the likes of you know feline IBD and lymphoma and Triaditis and, and um, those sort of common disorders that we see in cats. I'd love to just hear in a bit of an overview. Okay, um, so <laughs> I guess probably the the
1: one of the biggest what are the what's the most common things with with cats is that I guess they're not indiscriminate eaters the same way as um, as dogs are so we are less likely to see um, you know more we're less likely to see gastroenteritis um, in the same way or non Non-specific gastroenteritis, um, yeah. in the same way that we'll see in dogs, we also probably see less foreign bodies. Although we will see foreign bodies in, in cats, it's it's less common than in dogs. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and certainly my my clinical um, my clinical load is very very skewed. It's skewed towards, um, you know, definitely skewed towards. Uh, referral population, so it's probably mm. um, going to be seeing a, a different set of, of clinical scenarios, but probably the, the cats that I guess that I would see the most would be um, middle-aged to elderly cats with, with chronic vomiting and chronic intermittent vomiting. Yes,
0: um,
1: Yeah. And generally the reason why I probably see them in referral situations is that often they're not, you know, they're often not noted by either the either the owner or sometimes even their, their primary veterinarian as, as having a problem um, until it's relatively well advanced. Um, mm. And that may be because um, the vomiting is sometimes considered to be normal um, for, So for people
0: cats. are thinking that it's just a hairball? <laughs> yeah, it's just a yeah. hairball. And, yeah. and, and,
1: and I guess, you know, like, yes, it could just be a hairball, but, if you've, you know, if your cat's a short-haired cat, and you know, up until the age of seven has never vomited a hairball but, yeah. but now starts vomiting hair hairball, hairballs, you know, even if it's only once every two to three months, I guess for me that would raise the question, well why is it is it grooming more? You know, like does it actually have a yeah. primary, you know, um, skin disease skin or a pharietis so it's yeah. actually yeah. losing more hair? Or does it um it, or does it have a like a motility issue, you know, secondary to something that's going on within it within its gut? Um So so for me, I think that probably the most common thing that I will see are these chronic enteropathies slash IBD slash small cell lymphoma. Um,
0: Yes, yeah.
1: And um, and I think they're probably the spectrum of the same disease um, and that sometimes the line blurs between them, particularly between IBD and small cell lymphoma and And sometimes the diagnosis, I think, depends on which which bit you biopsy and which. Sometimes even you know which test you request when you biopsy and sometimes even you know which who looks at your biopsy. So yeah, sure. um,
0: Yeah,
1: you know it's so for me it's sometimes a little bit. um, Sometimes it's a little bit challenging for me to think about how far do I go with cats that present with chronic vomiting and I I guess for me I think a little bit differently about managing cats than I do with managing dogs partly partly because of that that spectrum Um, also partly because I think um, they've quite often potentially got concurrent disease so they might have um you know, they might have cholangitis um, associated mm-hmm. with that um, and they might potentially have um, a degree of pancreatitis, like chronic pancreatitis. Um, but often the reason why they're unwell is that primary intestinal disease. Um, and people might get really excited because the liver enzymes are really high, but it, but it's if you don't correct the underlying intestinal disease, um, you, you know, you're not going to resolve the, the secondary mm-hmm cholangitis yeah definitely
0: um,
1: so I generally am a little bit less and I guess the other thing is it's um you know often by the time they present sometimes the cats are quite um cachectic so they've lost it even if they even if they haven't lost weight they've quite often lost a reasonable amount of muscle mass mm. um yeah or they're inappetent um, or have a decreased appetite. And so it's not quite the same as when you've got a dog that's still eating that has diarrhoea where you can do a diet trial. So quite often with cats it's really challenging to do diet trials, um, particularly if they're not eating. much. they won't even eat. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So um, if I've got a a sick cat, which is usually the cats that I see, um, I would generally want to rule out, you know, non-GI disease. I want to make sure that they haven't got hypothyroidism or renal disease or something else mm-hmm. that that could be mimicking, um, you know, mimicking uh, intestinal disease. Um, and I'd want to do some imaging. So usually would yeah. do abdominal ultrasound. Um, if if they've got evidence of heart disease, I I'm, I might do an echo as well because yeah, you know, cats can vomit with cardiomyopathy because they're weird like that, but. <laughs> Um, but, you know, just Very want to unique. make sure that there's nothing nothing in the abdomen, you know, like a, a mass or a big lymph node or something like that that I either I can't palpate or that I could potentially aspirate and get an answer from. Um, and I usually yeah, would sure. like to um, aspirate the liver and the pancreas if I can, um, oh, right, as well as, as well. Um, lymph yeah. nodes. And sometimes bile. Um, if, for example, the the ALP is is um, increased, mm-hmm. I'd like to get a sample of bile and submit that for culture before I start on antibiotics. Yeah.
0: Um.
1: But if the if the gallbladder is really big, I want to make sure that I um, sort of empty the empty the gallbladder. Um, okay. You know, so don't, don't potentially don't want to cause any kind of rupture or anything, rupture. and then recheck and make sure that there's. You know this. You know a couple of hours later, and make sure that everything's good in there. Um, sure. And quite often, quite often, unless there's something you know, like really hugely bad um, on the abdominal ultrasound, that sometimes that that that's as invasive as I'll as I'll get in terms of diagnostics. Um, yeah. And you know, um, so if there's nothing diagnostic on there, or maybe it looks like there might be some inflammatory cells on the on the liver aspirate, and may or maybe you know, there's a little bit of lipid there or something. If the cat's not eating particularly well, I'll I'll often talk to the client about putting in an O-tube as a short-term solution. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And if I'm concerned that there's a cholangitis, I will start some um, antibiotics, but I'll I'll probably only just use amoxicillin um, Mm -hmm. because it's, um, you know, nice for the bile and um, and I'll support them like nutrition-wise and I'll either submit a sample for cabalamin, measuring cabalamin, um, and mm-hmm. or supplement them with cabalamin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I will consider talking to them about, um, uh, you know, adding in, I'll probably add in prednisolone unless mm-hmm. I think that um, there is a huge uh, you know, a huge contraindication to that. Like if I think that the, the cat's got a potential to become diabetic or something like that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And yeah. But it's at that stage where I just you know, the discussion is about whether to do endoscopy and biopsy um or not. Uh, you know, to confirm whether the yep. there's inflammation Versus or the inflammation. treatment yeah.
0: trial. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But often the treatment's kind of the same. Sometimes I don't yeah. Um, scope. Sometimes I do, but it, it really, I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer as long as um, everything's discussed with the owner and, you know, you take into account how well the cat is and, you mm-hmm. know, financial considerations and all that.
0: And then obviously that's a, a later option for you should they not respond as expected to your treatment trials. <laughs> yeah. The pro-
1: I guess part of the problem is once you started pregnancy line, um it's really hard to then. Um, make a definitive diagnosis of anything. Um,
0: yeah, sure. You know.
1: okay. So, so, you'd have so to have like you have a, to have that gap. discussion before before you, you start the pred
0: and probiotics. Where do they sort of come in in these conditions? So, so for me, probiotics in cats is is
1: more going to be more important with diarrhea than with vomiting, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and more and probably more beneficial when the cats are like eating and. Obviously, because you have to give it.
0: Yeah, of course. You know,
1: yeah, orally in with food, <laughs> um, but but probably more more in younger cats. So particularly, mm-hmm. you know, if cats have uh, again stress or changes with diet or things like that. So it's the younger ones that aren't that sick. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that's and have diarrhea as their primary presentation. That's where I think probiotics play a pretty important role.
0: And we've you did mention sort of earlier on in our conversation prebiotics. When are you reaching for a prebiotic, and what sort of conditions do you see respond best to a prebiotic, or even a symbiotic? <laughs> oh,
1: you know, I I'd like to say I I'd like to say I have it all sorted out in my head, but um, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't think that we know. I think. Uh, Most of the the GI therapeutic diets um, that we have have prebiotic for dogs and cats have prebiotics already incorporated into them. So we kind of, if we're able to get them onto a GI therapeutic diet, we probably don't really have to think about
0: prebiotics
1: at this stage. Um, Symbiotics, um, there are quite a few symbiotics on the market um, and I guess they have that added um, component because you, you do know that um, that they will potentially be, be beneficial by allowing that, um, you know, by allowing the, I guess, for want of a better word, the good bacteria to to proliferate. Yeah. Um, the problem that I think we have in veterinary medicine, it's the same in human medicine, is that that each individual's microbiome is unique and mm. each disease and needs to be characterised um, appropriately for us to then determine what's best prebiotic and the best probiotic for that yeah. individual with that particular disease. And so we're, we're a long way from that and I guess um, – or a long way from being able to, to do that at this stage. So um, f- for me sometimes it's a, it's a case of saying, well, you know, I think this particular product has been um, – Associated or reported to have the best have have a reasonable outcome in this particular clinical scenario, so we'll try this one first. Yeah, um, exactly. And, and yeah. then um, trial and error. And if, yeah, and then if that doesn't work, then we can try this one.
0: Yeah, um, for sure.
1: And I guess that's that's the advantage with both prebiotics and probiotics is that they're that they don't have after effects, and so yeah, um, that's right. You know, if it doesn't if it doesn't work and and you then move on to another one, you haven't um, haven't negatively impacted the the gut microbiome because yeah. their, their impacts trans- don't last effect. beyond yeah uh, beyond the time in which
0: you've
1: you've had them. You know, whereas well, we're starting to learn about with antibiotics, and particularly particularly with metronidazole, which I, I guess has been the mainstay for a lot of people. Yeah, a lot that was of actually times. going to be um, my next
0: question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfect.
1: I, I've, been, I've been I've been guilty of dishing out metronidazole. Um, Same. You know, plenty plenty of times, and um, yeah, and uh, you know, it's uh, become apparent that the impacts on the microbiome um, last f- for weeks, if not months, after. Yeah. Um, after uh, it, the course has been finished, and that and that's Scary. in healthy dogs. But um, mm-hmm. you know, we don't. It's probably even worse in, in dogs. I uh, It hasn't been looked at in cats, to my knowledge yet. But um, but you know that the impact in in dogs with an already or animals with an ority deranged microbiome could be potentially even worse. So um, yeah, absolutely, so, it's
0: definitely overused. Yeah. I have to ask yeah. the question. Um, I mean, I haven't been in practice now for a few years, but I I did work in a practice that used a lot of metronidazole because there was a lot of dietary indiscretion happening and a lot of indoor dogs developing diarrhoea and needing a quick resolution. So there was a mm-hmm. lot of demand for it. Uh, obviously, in most cases of a dietary indiscretion, you wouldn't need to reach for metronidazole, but when would you actually want to use an antibiotic such as that or, or something alternative for a, for a sort of walk-in diarrhoea case? Is it when you're seeing blood or when the animal's unwell or is there any indication for it if there's nothing else sort of underlying the condition or would you choose a probiotic in, those, in all of those cases?
1: Um, all right. So, so the, presence of, the presence of blood per se doesn't mean anything except for the fact that there's probably some colonic inflammation yeah. Right. So, um, uh, but it scares people. Yeah, right? does. And uh, everybody wants to, they don't. To fix it. Uh, not many people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And they don't, they, want to, <laughs> they don't want to pay the consult fee if you say don't do anything. Um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of indication, if the animal is well, you know, so there's no fever, um, there's no abdominal pain, no lethargy, no dehydration. Um For me, there is no indication to do anything else except potentially maybe manipulate the diet and or give – and by doing that, you can add a prebiotic um, Mm -hmm. or, you know, and you could add, you know, Supplement with psyllium, for example, mm-hmm. um, and/or yep. give a, a probiotic or symbiotic, and that would be the yep. most that I, most that I think you would be justified in doing. And just uh, a short
0: term course, sort of five to seven days, all those. Yeah, or? not even that. Yeah. Like
1: I, yeah. I think three to five days. And I, and I yeah, think if okay. we were brutally brutally honest, it would get it would get better by itself. It it might yeah, it might just it take better. one day longer. I mean, it, yeah, yeah, it may get better quicker with a um, with with that management, um, yep. but. Uh, you know, and that, and, and, you know, particularly if you are dealing with indoor dog and dealing with diarrhea, that, that one, one day quicker or that one to two day quicker is probably worth it, you know, for the owners. Yes. So, yeah, absolutely. But I, I, I don't think there's any clinical justification for using um, antibiotic in that situation. Um,
0: yeah, good. If, no, I'm good. It's good to get that message out there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, if the animal is febrile um, and sort of showing any kind of signs of sepsis, um, mm. And or needs hospitalisation. That's a different matter. Completely right? that, different. Um, yeah. You know, but that that needs hospitalisation, right? And, IV and investigation. And, um, yeah. And probably needs culture. Ideally, needs culture yeah. identification and, and a little bit more invasive workup. Um,
0: yeah. So while the, you're waiting for those results, would you start on anything, or are you waiting to see
1: what so I, it would be? Well, like, I don't think you've, if if the dog is true or the cat. Um, is truly septic. You can't really wait, right? So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you have to start on something, and and you something want to start on something spectrum. fairly broad spectrum, and you want yeah. to start on something that is um, not going to, um, you know, not going to cause resistance. So, I probably would start with something like uh, if you've got it available, a potentiated amoxicillin, um, you know, or mm-hmm. or maybe metronidazole if you if you are sure that it's coming from the gut. Um, mm-hmm. Something along those, you know, uh, you know, ampicillin plus metronidazole if you have to, um, mm-hmm. or a potentiated amoxicillin would be yeah. where I would okay. start.
0: Yeah, or I sure. do, or
1: even tr- trimethoprim sulphur, Just like going yeah, back okay. old school.
0: <laughs> yeah. So orally for these.
1: Well, um, if they if they're really septic, if they're really sick, no, you have to kind of give them IV. IV. But, um, yeah. Yeah, but otherwise, yeah. yes, oral.
0: Okay, that's really clear. Thank you. I just have always had a bit of a bugbear about the overuse of, of antibiotics for
1: yeah, I, I guess simple the cases. Pro- yeah, part of the problem for us as well is it uh, you know is it's is it's really hard to actually um, identify what's a, what's a pathogen um, because many many of the things that are potentially pathogenic can also be isolated from healthy dogs, or cats. Um, yeah. I, I you know I guess obviously the exception you know being things like parvovirus or uh, you know, like known pathogens like that, but um, you know, like a lot of the Clostridium, um, you know, can can be isolated from, you know, from healthy animals, and healthy even animals, even Salmonella. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, you know, it's
1: definitely pathogenic, but you you know you have to have to take the risk. But you know, if you're going to treat that Salmonella, that it potentially is going to shed for longer. So, um, yeah, you right. know, that kind okay. of increases the the risk for um, potentially for you know,
0: any any people in contact with that with that yeah, animal. Yeah. I didn't realise that. Okay. So it sounds like really you sort of need to know what you're dealing with before you attack things with too many antibiotics, um, in an yeah. ideal situation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Amazing. Well, I know we're getting close to time, Caroline. I'm really grateful for you giving up your hour because um, I'm okay. sure that you've got a very busy day. But before we finish up and say goodbye, is there anything else that you feel is important to um, to get out there in regards to sort of gut health and things that we've talked about today? Uh,
1: no, I guess it's kind of a little bit, you know, without sort of um, a, a little bit along the lines of what we were talking about before in, in that um, uh, you know probably all disease uh, if it doesn't begin in the gut it's potentially exacerbated um by the by the gut and i think when we are dealing with things particularly like antibiotics i think we as a profession i think we need to maybe be a little bit more careful in this um you know I guess, more long-term. And so there's this particular window of opportunity when the microbiome is developing um, in, in animals, and so probably the first sort of three to four months of life, yeah. and that that's the time where a lot of other things are developing, including, you know, the brain and including behaviour and, and all sorts of other things. And, and so I think we particularly need to be really judicious about any antimicrobials yeah, or systemic for sure. antimicrobials that are used during that particular window because if we yeah. – um, alter the, we don't know what impacts altering the microbiome in that particular three to four months might have on the later systemic health yeah. of the animal and also potentially even the, the behaviour and, um, you know, mental, one of word the mental health. <laughs> I know that doesn't quite apply, um, but we could be doing a lot more damage than good. Um, yeah, you know, if, absolutely. Yeah. If Alter things in that first three to four months.
0: Yeah, so that's. Yeah, my I think that's a really that's a good point. It's a really important <laughs> um, thing to mention. Absolutely, and it's the same with with um, you know infant children as well. I think they say the first three years are so critical of establishing that gut microbiome, and then it's sort of sets the blueprint for life.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and you know they've got that's that whole hygiene hypothesis as well. Absolutely, yeah. so yeah. yeah. Yeah,
0: poor COVID children (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh dear Um, great well I think we'll wrap it up there thank you so much again Caroline and um, we'll be sure to to, um, have you back we'd really love to do an episode I think on pancreatitis given how much research you've done there so I think that's something that we might pop in the diary um, before too long if that's okay with you (laughs) perfect amazing well thank you and you have a wonderful day and rest of your week chat to you again soon. No problem. Thank you very much. Before we say goodbye today, I wanted to introduce you all to Dr. Trish Santos-Smith, who will be guest hosting the podcast for the rest of the year for me. I'm going off to have my second baby and I'm so pleased to be able to leave the podcast in Trish's capable hands. Trish, please say hi to our listeners and tell us a bit about yourself. Well, hi, Sarah. Well, I graduated from Sydney Uni in 2002. And then I went on to um, practice in small animal clinics for about five years. And then I went into pet insurance for 10 years before um, getting a position at Paul by Blackmore's. And now I'm extremely lucky to be taking over while you go on your maternity leave. And I can't wait to record some amazing podcasts over the next 10 months or so. Thanks Trish and I'll be sure to listen in during my many months off. I'm really excited to hear all of your wonderful conversations. This was the Pure Animal Podcast and I'm Dr Sarah Howard. If you enjoyed our chat today with Dr Caroline Mansfield please leave us a rating and review on iTunes so other people can find it.